Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, the two Michaels on trial, and AstraZeneca gets two thumbs up from the U.S. Here it comes. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Spring arrived this past weekend. There is nothing better than the smell of manure thawing in the fields. Through a mask, of course. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. What that is? I wasn't sure. Uh, I thought it was just mask blowback. Good afternoon. It is 12.09. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. I know you're eating. That was terrible. Uh, it is the Scott Thompson Home Show. Uh, Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Week number 54. Uh, feel free to uh, join us in the celebration. Uh, love to hear from you. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. On that note, uh, Michael Kovrig on trial. Uh, in China today, of course, Michael Spaver was on Friday. And uh, again, pretty much the same for both of these gentlemen. We haven't heard a tremendous amount of news about any of this. Let's bring in Jim Nickel. This is a clip from uh, the Canadian Embassy's deputy chief of mission uh, and was repeatedly refused entry to get into the proceedings to see this trial. Michael Kovrig has been detained for more than two years now. Uh, He's been arbitrarily detained, and now we see that uh, the uh, court process itself is uh, not transparent. Uh, We're uh, very troubled by this. All right, let's bring in Abigail Beeman, Ottawa correspondent for Global News, who's covering this. Abigail, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me. Abigail, I guess no surprises here from uh, what we've witnessed and what we've seen go on with both of these trials. Uh, well, I, all the experts that I spoke to were expecting a similar scene to unfold in Beijing today or, or overnight yesterday, our time. Uh, and uh, that is that the Canadian consular officials were not allowed into the courtroom. Uh, this time there were more uh, um, there were more diplomats present from a number of other countries. About two dozen diplomats showed up from uh, the U.S., Australia and quite a few European countries. Uh, experts were also expecting there to be more diplomats present today than on Friday at Michael Spavor's trial just because of location. Michael Kovrig's trial uh, took place in Beijing uh, compared to Dandong on the uh, on the border with North Korea. Uh, but uh, the Canadian officials tried until that trial was underway to get access and were uh, repeatedly denied by China. So uh, Canada denied entry, but others were allowed to observe. Is that accurate or have I misheard no, you there? No, no, sorry if I, if I didn't explain that in a, in a clear manner. All of these other diplomats showed up to support Canada and stand on the street outside right, the courthouse right, with right. Canada, but no one allowed in, no public, no media, and certainly no consular officials. And is that common for other trials? We understand it is that have happened in the past that uh, nobody is sort of allowed there to observe or, or, uh, or give any counseling of any sort. Well, uh, according to China, this is standard practice for national security cases uh, that uh, because they believe that state secrets, quote unquote, are involved in this case, uh, that they that nobody can be allowed in. Now, Canada disputes that, saying that the consular, uh, the bilateral consular agreement, as well as the Vienna Convention overrides China's domestic policy on that front, because we're talking about a Canadian citizen 
who is standing trial here. Uh, but that's the that's the back and forth. And overnight, the Chinese foreign minister ministry slammed uh, all of those uh, international allies for uh, basically messing with the Chinese judicial system, accusing them uh, of, uh, of of pointing fingers and, and getting involved here. So uh, certainly a, a disagreement on both sides about access. But at the end of the day, uh, the, the Canadian consular officials have not had access to either Michael Stavor nor Michael Kovrig right before uh, their trials and nor after. So when he was leaving the Beijing uh, courthouse after probably about 10 hours of, of standing there waiting, the Canadian Chargé d'Affaires uh, from the from the embassy there uh, said that they would be registering their uh, protest with uh, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and that they would be pushing to see Michael Kovrig as soon as possible. So obviously no uh, consular service, no legal representation. How much of these proceedings would the two Michaels even be aware of? Like, obviously, there's a language barrier. I understand there's not translation. So what would it be like for them in this process? I mean, when would they even find out they're going to court? Right. All good questions, uh, which I have some answers for because of the uh, thanks to the experts that I've spoken to. And I've also spoken to a couple of people, I, I, a man who lives in England and, and uh, the Canadian Kevin Garrett, who have lived through the same process. So I can answer some of them uh, from from that information. But of course, there's a lot of secrecy involved with the Chinese court system. But we know that uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Stavro would have had a lawyer with them present uh, during the trial. However, according to, to Kevin Garrett, uh, they're really responsible restricted in speaking with that lawyer and restricted in when and how they can participate in the trial. Kevin Garrett says, and so do other China experts, that there is an interpreter in that trial, but that the interpreter is not interpreting everything. So you're left feeling pretty confused. <laughs> Kevin Garrett said he has some basic Mandarin. Um, we understand that Michael Kovrig's Mandarin may be better than Michael Spavor's Mandarin, so he may have been able to have a better grasp as to what's going on. But as Kevin Garrett describes it, it's a, a, a lot of confusion and, and you're not sure what's happening. He also, Kevin Garrett, did not, uh, that was your other question, did not have a lot of access, or sorry, a lot of heads up as to when this trial would begin. And, you know, there's a lot of people who believe that the timing of this trial to coincide with the first meeting with between China and the new Biden administration was not a coincidence. So uh, a, a fair assumption, I think, to say that these two men would not have had a lot of time to prepare uh, or to even be aware of their trial. And now they, they await the next step. Abigail, you talked about uh, not a coincidence of the timing on this, considering the officials that were meeting in, in Alaska, yet from who I've talked to, the people I've talked to, they've said that this wasn't a priority at that meeting. So do we know how much of it, and I'm sure all this is behind the scenes, but, but do we know how much of, a, uh, of an issue this was at that meeting? Uh, the short answer is no, although we'll never really know behind the scenes, you know, what, what was, what was going on. But, uh, there's a lot, there was a lot of suspicions that perhaps China scheduled these trials because China wanted to use the Canadian cases as some sort of a bargaining chip with the U.S. in order to get their way with the Meng Wanzhou case. Uh, now we know that in the past, in the last administration, President Donald Trump had been making some noise about potentially interfering, uh, with that case. 
But Joe Biden and the administration, and, and as we understand from this meeting that took place, have not strayed from their path of not interfering with the rule of law, just like, you know, Canada does and says. Uh, so the Biden administration, as far as we can tell, are not going to do anything to interfere with the rule of law, uh, which is what is frustrating China in terms of they really thought that they could get Meng Wanzhou back uh, pretty easily. And maybe then in turn, that would have uh, caused some movement in the case of the two Canadians. But that the experts say is why there's really a standstill here or why it's difficult to see how to move this forward uh, since the U.S. doesn't seem to be moving uh, and since China doesn't seem to be moving either. So now we wait for uh, for the verdict and sentencing. Um, And could the timing of that be equally as suspicious? In other words, they're playing this hand, meaning China's playing this hand, and then they're waiting to see what the reaction is post, you know, uh, maybe conviction between conviction and sentencing. Yes, exactly. It's sort of anyone's guess in terms of, of how they'll play that next move and what it is that they're waiting for. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the, the how this plays out next is, is, is unpredictable, except that most people agree that a guilty conviction uh, is the most probable outcome because the conviction rate in China is higher than 99%. So most people are, are preparing for a conviction here. Uh, what is left on the table is, is then what? Then how do we move forward? And so if you are an optimist, uh, a lot of people hoping for a best case scenario in which there may be a guilty conviction, but there's some way to bring these two men home, whether that's through a deportation order as part of the sentence or, and again, this is what happened to Kevin Garrett, you know, quietly released later on, on uh, whether it's claiming humanitarian grounds or, or illness or something else, but some way for China to, to let these men come home later. But later may be the key word, too, as they may end up having to wait even after convicted and, and serving part of their sentence. This is obviously not good news for the two Michaels. However, you certainly do get the feeling that China is starting to feel the pressure here, that they're getting squeezed on this. Uh, well, well, we will have to see. Uh, interesting. Story yeah, that's my interpretation, be- Abigail. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> um, it, well, it's it's a good segue to know that there is a developing story, like literally this minute, um, in which this morning the EU announced some targeted sanctions against China, specifically for what's happening to the Uyghurs. Um, if I have it correct, it's, it's some sanctions against four specific individuals. Beijing hit back immediately with some counter sanctions, and uh, literally before I ran into the the booth to do this um, uh, to do this interview, uh, Canada seems to be announcing similar sanctions of its own. So stay tuned on that front because I don't have all the details yet from from Global Affairs. They strangely announced it via a tweet on the Canada Foreign Policy Twitter account, not even something from the Foreign Affairs Minister or from Global Affairs Canada. So waiting to see, and I don't want to overstate um, what the, what the decision has been made has has what decision has been made there. But again, looking to what the EU did, and that is some very targeted sanctions uh, protesting the treatment of the Uyghur population in China. Wow, that is big. So what happens now to the two Michaels? What's their, what is the next 24, 48, uh, 72 hours like for them? Well, from from those who who, who understand the, the system, they tell me it's just back to jail uh, as usual, um, as where they have been for for more than two years now, and and they're stuck waiting until they they receive this verdict. Did anybody see them? Has anybody seen them in these environments? 
That's a good question. Uh, well, the answer would be that their lawyer did. Um, Canada was pushing to get access to both men before the trial actually happened, and that did not happen. So Canada has not seen them before the trial, is now pushing to see to get a consular visit after the trial. Uh, it was a, a slightly different situation on Friday in the case of Michael Spavor. Um, I, I wasn't there, but just from, from watching the footage come in, it appeared to be a smaller courthouse with maybe fewer access uh, and exit points. And so they were all pretty confident that they couldn't see Michael Spavor, but that he saw them, so that there was that group of diplomats standing and waving. And the lawyer, Michael Spavor's lawyer, later said to the Canadian consular official, he saw you, he saw you guys waving at him, and that was, you know, know, a positive moment or a bright moment of the day. At the Kovrig trial, from what I could see, uh, it looked like there were really a whole bunch of different gates and access points, and there was never a moment where they thought that there was, you know, a car going in. But uh, again, going back to Kevin Garrett's experience when he was in the same shoes, he said that it was it gave him such a boost of optimism to see, you know, the media there and the diplomats there and people waving and showing support, you know, coming from a jail cell to see that actually my case is being heard uh, around the world makes such a difference. So really unclear whether Kovrig had that same experience, but it seems that Michael Spavor did get to see those people standing outside for him on Friday. Wow, Abigail, that sends uh, chills down your spine when you hear stuff like that. Um, so yeah, is there really a moment in that video for sure. So are there any images or pictures of these two at all? Uh, you mean as, as to how they're to being see how their health is, to see no, how they're doing, what exactly. they look like? No, exactly. So I think the only person, uh, the the only people who would know that are the, were those limited number of people inside the courtroom. But as far as I'm aware, we haven't uh, seen anything in in a number of months. Now they they do have these. Uh, virtual in-person, I think is the right term, some strange <laughs> combination there, um, virtual in-person consular visits they have had, but they have not had one recently. So the Canadian, uh, whoever is visiting from the Canadian side, has had a glimpse of these men over the past two years on a sometimes regular, then interrupted by COVID, then sometimes not regular basis. But at, 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 when things are good, it, it, it's about a monthly consular visit. Uh, many and last question here, Abigail. I know you got to run. Um, they uh, many have said if this was two Americans that had been detained, it would have been a completely different story. Do we get the feeling now that Americans are taking this as if these were Americans? Interesting that you, you say that because that was literally what um, what we were told outside court in Beijing today uh, when when Jim Nichol, the Canadian consular official, was asked, "Did this come up at the meeting with at the Alaska meeting between the U.S. and Canada? What are you hearing about American support?" Jim Nichol said, "The U.S. has told us they are treating this case as if they are American citizens." So whether the rest of the country is, is paying attention to is, is is another question, but certainly a lot of international eyes on that courthouse. This morning wow this is uh, going to be interesting to see how this all develops in the next little while and hopefully not too long for uh, the two michaels abigail beeman with his ottawa correspondent for global national talking about uh, michael kovrig on uh, trial in china uh, today monday and of course uh, michael spaver on friday abigail thank you so much for the time and insight much appreciated be well Thank you. You too. Uh, as we uh, all are aware, uh, the world, including Canada's view 
of China and the Chinese Communist Party has changed drastically over the last few years, and this has affected Chinese Canadians and the way they are treated. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Jamie Chai Yun, uh, Yun Lu, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law with the University of Ottawa and an expert in immigration, refugee, and citizenship law, as well as administrative law and public law. Uh, Jamie, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me. So obviously, uh, we've seen Canadians' view of China and the Chinese Communist Party change drastically in the last few years. This has gone from, uh, you know, a golden opportunity, the golden goose, to where we are now. How is this affecting the lives of Chinese Canadians? Well, first of all, I want to point out to your listeners that a lot of Asians that are being harassed and attacked are not necessarily Chinese, and that Mm. we shouldn't conflate the two, that the actions of the Chinese government, whether or not they are problematic or not, should not be um, born on people who may resemble or look Asian. And so it's really concerning um, to conflate or to tie ideas of what the Chinese government is doing and their problematic political decisions with um, people that live in Canada or might be residing in Canada that appear to be Asian. Uh, obviously, Canada is a land of immigrants. Why would there be any difference here? Well, I would, I would like listeners to know that, um, again, that any decisions made by a foreign government doesn't necessarily mean or justify um, attacks, violent pushing, shoving, or um, assault on people that look like people from China. Um, so, you know, whatever is happening in our politics, whatever is happening between two states, whatever is happening in a foreign country doesn't justify any treatment that anybody within Canada um, should face just because of the color of their skin or the way that they look. Uh, our are Chinese Canadians being uh, harassed or bothered by Chinese nationals who have come to this country? We have heard reports of that as well. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that some people are using um, politics and actions of a foreign government as an excuse to treat people badly, and that is wrong. Um, and second, I think it is um, interesting that that tie is being made because a lot of people of Chinese descent or other Asian communities aren't necessarily foreigners. Some of these people, like myself, are born in Canada. We're born and raised here. We should be treated as fellow community members. Mm-hmm. We should not have to bear any, um, you know, assumptions or, um, uh, or attacks as a result of what a foreign country is doing. We shouldn't have to um, face any judgment on the fact that we may look like someone from a different country just because of our skin color or hair color or whatnot doesn't mean that we aren't members of this community doesn't mean that we deserve to be treated any less than um, other people in our community and I think it's important to uh, to make note uh, that that situation is completely different from Canadians who are committing, I'm guessing, the majority of these situations. I didn't mean to draw uh, that as a reason for this going on. So it's not Canadians, it's the Chinese nationals that are doing this. That's not what I'm trying to point across, uh, the point that I'm trying to get across at all. What I'm trying to figure out is, proportionately, is it how much of it is that, how much of it is Canadians who just don't understand? Well, the majority of attacks that are being reported and data that is being collected on Asians 
that have received an increased number of harassment and attacks in the last year during the pandemic seem to be from non-Chinese nationals. So it appears to be from people who are perhaps, um, uh, you know, who look white, um, who are not Chinese-looking. So the majority of attacks and the majority of the violent ones that are being reported by media are conducted by people that don't necessarily belong to the same community. So this is just old-fashioned prejudice. Yeah, I would say so. What message do you want, uh, what message do Chinese Canadians want Canadians to hear? Well, first of all, I would like to reiterate that it's not just Chinese Canadians facing this, it's all kinds of Asian Canadians. Secondly, that we shouldn't judge people by how they look. These people are part of our community. We should treat people with the same kind of respect and humanity that we treat other people. Um, and that if we're jumping to these conclusions, um, there's something wrong with the way in which we ourselves are thinking about who actually belongs in our community, who are citizens, who are permanent residents, who are deserving peoples of our community. And it says a lot about um, how we view who are foreigners, who are not. Um, and I want to invite people to think about the fact that there are a lot of racialized people in our community that are born here but naturalized here that are contributing members to society and don't deserve any harassment, violent beatings, or any mistreatment just on the basis of how they look. Do we need more in the Chinese community, sorry, Asian community, because again, it's it's everybody, speaking out not only about the abuse that's happening, but also the history and some education here and, and answering some questions. Definitely. I think that um, the only silver lining I see out of these incidents is that we're starting to raise awareness about how our laws, how our society structures, um, conversations around who belongs, who deserves citizen, who are part of our community. Um, Certainly, we should be able to talk more about the history of exclusion, the history um, and, and how current laws continue to exclude and to punish people in ways that aren't deserving. And so I think this is a good thing that hopefully these incidents lead to wider discussions, not only to educate people about their experience and how it affects them, but also leading to wider discussions about public policy change and legal reform on immigration, on access to all kinds of um, services and treatment in, in, in public spaces writ large. How do how do Asians or Canadian Chinese feel about what is going on in China with the Chinese Communist Party? Do we need to hear more of that? Well, you know, I think that just like any other community, if you ask, you know, the Irish community or you mm-hmm. ask, um, you know, the French community from France how they feel about policies that are happening in their home country or their perceived home country, there's going to be a variety of views. And so I think we can't, you know, essentialize or cast this wide community as the same, as thinking the same, as having the same viewpoints. And just like every other Canadian, we all have different feelings about Prime Minister Trudeau. And so to recognize that we can't just paint one community as having the same thoughts, the same reactions, or um, the same political opinions, for that matter. How difficult is it to immigrate here from China? Well, I, I don't know, and I think it really depends on the individual case. If you mm. are a skilled worker and can fit within the rubric of our immigration system, you certainly have a better chance than someone, say, who has um, is been deemed as lower skilled, for example. 
Um, if you're coming as a student, that might pose as an additional opportunity. If you're coming as a refugee, as you might know, their laws have changed quite frequently in the last few years, and there might be restrictions in the ability to access our borders right now, but also in in, in the way in which refugee determinations are being made. So it really depends on the personal circumstances of the person. And I would say it's no different than any other person from around the world, save for the fact that, um, so, you know, the, the Canadian government has been processing, you know, work permits, student visas, and um, the like differently from different parts of the world. So um, I, I guess it would depend on the individual cases, and I would hate to, you know, generalize as to how migrants from certain parts of the world are being treated writ large. What is your view of the Chinese Communist Party of late and, and their influence in Canada? How, how would you view this personally? Well, I'm not an expert on um, Chinese-Canadian relations. I'm certainly not an expert and don't follow so closely the politics in China. But I can say that, you know, as any other Canadian, I am concerned about the two Michaels that has been making the news in the last few weeks, especially because of the trials that are occurring. As a lawyer, I'm concerned about the procedural and substantive fairness that they're going to receive in those courts of law. Um, and certainly I'm concerned um, about uh, potential repercussions falling from that legal process. So certainly, I, you know, I'm sure that um, I'm not the only one that feels this way. And as I said, you know, the Chinese community, the Asian community is large, is diverse, um, has a wide variety of takes on uh, the politics um, and certainly our own politics at home. Um, and so I don't pretend to speak for any community writ large. Is this message getting out that there is prejudice against this community because of the way things are in the world? Is this message getting out? I'm sure there is. There is a lot of attention paid to the fact that President Trump, for example, called the coronavirus, the Asian virus, the China virus, the Wuhan virus. You know, that kind of rhetoric certainly has increased people's perhaps um, licensed to act in ways that are violent and harassing in abusive ways. Um, I am sure that um, actions of the Chinese government have also been attributed to people walking in our community. So I don't, I, I don't doubt that, um, you know, people are being blamed for things that are not within their control and solely on the basis of their skin color. Jamie Chai Yoon Lu has been with us, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law with the University of Ottawa and an expert in immigration, refugee, and citizenship law, as well as administrative law and public law. Jamie, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Here is today's Daily Commentary. You know you have spent a lot of time in your house when you are taking down swing sets. It has been on my honey-do list for a few years now. I think the last time the kids used the swing set in our backyard was during a birthday party five years ago when we needed something to hang a pinata from. The swings rotted off a while ago, so now it's more of a structure fit for squirrels and birds than human usage. Frankly, I'm surprised and a little disappointed it is still standing. I thought it would tumble years ago. Now it's left for me to dismantle and take to the curb now that there really isn't any usable parts left and is nothing more than an eyesore. But it's hard not to feel a little melancholy about the whole ordeal, remembering assembling it for our wee kids not that long ago. 
and who are now asking for the car keys, not a push on the swing. Where did that go? All right, enough of this sentimental crap. Where's my chainsaw? I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Plans to administer more vaccinations have changed. Bookings for the 75 plus age group were set to start the first week of April, but late last week, Premier Doug Ford indicated they're ahead of schedule. We've made incredible progress in getting more COVID vaccines to our most vulnerable. More than 50% of those aged 80 and older have received at least one dose by now. And with bookings among this age group dropping, Ford says they want to keep the supply moving. And more doses are coming to Canada this week. Five is expected to ship nearly 1.2 million of them, and from there, at least a million will be coming on a weekly basis. As for Moderna, over 840,000 doses are expected to arrive this week in two separate shipments. Tina Trajani, Global News. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Uh, as would uh, as was mentioned, uh, obviously, uh, we're starting to see the vaccinations roll out uh, now. Uh, again, pending any other slowdowns or disruptions, we could see uh, up to a million vaccines coming in weekly, which is great news, and we'll keep these mass vaccinations uh, sites moving. Uh, again, once the the product starts coming in, it's easier to uh, to keep it going out on a consistent basis. Uh, the great news is uh, we heard from Dr. Tam over the weekend saying that uh, she is seeing a dent in this as a result of obviously getting all of our uh, those in um, in seniors' homes, long-term care and such uh, vaccinated, which we all know uh, took just the... Uh, uh, horrific uh, blow from this from this uh, global uh, pandemic and 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 hit the seniors residents extremely hard. Uh, the good news is the uh, mass vaccination that's gone on there, uh, and uh, the premier uh, also guaranteeing that those people will receive their second dose as well. Uh, they've seen a they've seen a drop in not only cases but especially uh, deaths, which is uh, which is great news. So to talk about all of this and. What is going on? Let's bring in Chris Bow, Research Chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Specialist in Mathematical and Computer Modeling, Infectious Disease Outbreaks, University of Waterloo, and with us now. Chris, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. well I'm doing well, Scott, and I hope you are too, and thanks for having me. So we're sort of in a weird space right here, uh, Chris, in the, in the sense that, you know, we are seeing cases go up, but we are seeing fatalities go down. We are seeing great impact in senior care homes that this vaccination has made. How do you describe where we are? It's, it's almost like we're between two intersecting points, but they haven't quite intersected yet, and it's a race between the variant and the vaccines. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're kind of seeing, seeing the early fruits of of our labors. So when we started immunizing the people in the long-term care facilities, um, you know, both the residents and the caregivers, that reduced both the cases and the deaths in those settings. And, and that's what Dr. Tam was referring to uh, um, earlier today uh, in terms of those those promising um, outcomes for the, for the deaths. And now that we're expanding the vaccine program, you know, eventually we're hoping we'll see a similar trend across the rest of the province. Um, you know, that'll take time because, you know, at the moment, cases are ramping up and, and uh, the vaccines are, are still coming. But but eventually we'll see this, this the same kind of turnaround for the rest of the province. So uh, in, the, in the coming months, we'll see a, um, deaths will probably start to drop first and then, and then cases will start to dwindle as well, I imagine. 
So what are your thoughts when we are? We're up to uh, 1,699 cases today. Uh, Tragically, three have lost their lives, but we certainly do remember when those uh, when those uh, death numbers were a lot higher. So h- how do we how do we interpret these numbers going up and yet uh, the fatalities going down? Is right. that good news? Is it bad news? Is it, are we holding steady? Uh, where should we be with this? I think we. It's hard to say uh, if it's you know if we're holding steady. Uh, I mean, of course, the good news is that death rate is going down, and that's because we're we're vaccinating our most vulnerable groups first. And then the, the bad news is the cases are rising because we're reopening and we have at the same time these, these highly transmissible variants. Now, I think what will happen in the short term is that because of the reopening and these variants, we're going to see a, another surge in cases, in other words, a third wave. And in fact, it's basically already started. Uh, cases have been trending upwards for, for uh, a couple of weeks now. Um, and But then after that surge in cases, as the vaccine program uh, kicks in, We'll, we'll see the deaths start to come down again. Uh, but it's, it's, it's hard to know if we'll see a third wave in deaths as well as cases, if that makes sense, because, because on the one hand, cases are going up, but on the other hand, we're vaccinating more people. Uh, and that, you know, whether or not we see a third wave in, in terms of deaths as well really depends upon, you know, how fast we can get uh, people vaccinated. Uh, and and we, we don't really know that yet. And, well, that makes perfect sense, Chris, because when you think about it, the way this all started, maybe m- many were concerned that the following wave would be greater than the one that was previous, which has happened with the first and the second. However, as you mentioned, when we're hitting when we're heading into the third wave, uh, there's a few more tools in the toolbox, and and that being that the seniors in long term care have been vaccinated, which obviously uh, took their the the horrific brunt of this. So, what do you anticipate a third wave? to look like considering uh we've made the uh the progress that we had with uh, have with those 80 plus right so you know i think cases will continue increasing over the next uh month or so uh i think very you know possibly they 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 might even exceed the peak that we saw in the in the second wave so you know we were peaking at around uh, four thousand cases a day or so in ontario and that's definitely within the realm of possibility for the third wave because that 50% transmissibility increase for the variants is, is, is really a huge number. Um, now, in terms of, uh, so I think you'll see the cases rise and then they'll peak. Uh, not sure exactly when, you know, but probably uh, April or May before falling back again. Uh, and then cases, uh, deaths will, will, will start to increase too. But I, I think the vaccination program will kick in to kind of, you know, lop off that that peak in death so so i don't know if it will be a, a big increase or more of a plateau in death that we'll see um but it, it the number of deaths the probability of, of 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 dying will be much less in the third wave than the second wave and we've seen this with with each wave you know the march wave in 2020 was really bad in, in terms of the death rate second wave was a bit better as we learned more about treatment uh you know and and the right drugs to use and then the third wave will be even less dangerous uh, because of the vaccine. Um, but at the same time, you know, we do want to hold in there because the, we don't have the vaccine yet <laughs> for most, yeah. for, you know, for most Ontarians. So we don't want to let that our, our, our guard quiet yet. Uh, um, I've used the analogy of like a finish line where we're so close to the finish line now. We're so close to the point where we can, you know, vaccinate every Ontarian. Uh, and so, you know, we just want to keep going until we can cross that finish line. That's kind of where we're at right now. Are we going to see more younger people getting sick as we vaccinate the older? 
Yes, I, I think we will. And that's, you know, uh, you've got the warming temperatures and uh, exams coming to an end uh, in April. And perhaps most importantly, I, I think maybe there's uh, a per, less of a perceived need to be careful because the reason goes, well, you know, the vaccine is available now for, for, the, old, for the older individuals. And so we can let our guard down. Uh, and but of course, as soon as you do that, that, that will cause more cases. And 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 even if you know, COVID-19 only has a low probability of killing, say, a healthy 20 year old, uh, you can still be sick for a long time and you'll feel very miserable. And um, and there are other long term consequences. Uh, but I think part of it is the fact that uh the presence of the vaccine makes people feel like it, it, it's okay to do these things again, like gather in large groups and, and, and go to parties and things like that. Uh, what about ICUs? Because the issue was, and I remember halfway through this pandemic and people were saying and not taking it seriously, it's not going to affect me. I don't do this. I don't do that, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that being said, that wasn't the issue. The issue was those that do get sick, get extremely sick and end up uh, filling up the healthcare system, filling up ICUs. Where will this leave ICUs? Because if the older generation, is, meaning 80 plus, 75 plus, are vaccinated, those were the ones that were, it seemed to be filling up the ICUs back in the second wave. Yeah, so we might still see pretty busy ICUs. Uh, I, I mean, you know, they're, they're having a hard time coping as it is right now. Uh, and the problem with the variants is that they, have a higher mortality rate as well as being more transmissible. So, uh, you know, even though the death rate is, is, is really high, uh, the ICU rate is not negligible in younger age classes uh, compared to the 80-year-olds. So I, um, we could very well be in a situation, uh, I would say it's likely, where uh, hospitalization ICU rates are, are, are very high in the third wave, uh, even though um, the death rates aren't quite as high as they were in the second wave. Uh, continuing, uh, Canada's continuing to, to waive the second dose for, uh, up to four months. Ontario has said they're going to finish, uh, giving the second doses to those, uh, that are in those, uh, vulnerable situations in long-term care. Uh, and then, you know, obviously mass vaccination with one dose. What can we do with one dose of this vaccine? How does that change things for us? You know, you can do quite a lot with one dose. So we now know from latest data that a single dose gives you, uh, you know, 70 to 90 percent protection uh, compared to, say, 95 percent protection for two doses. So it gives you most of what you what you need in terms of protection. Now, of course, you still want the second dose uh, and, you know, people should eventually get it. But but this approach of kind of stretching our supplies by protecting two people with with a 70 to 90 percent effective single dose instead of just one person with 95% protection. That's a great way of stretching out the supplies until, uh, until we get more vaccine shipments coming in. And they should you know, keep doing that, I think. Uh, um, uh, at some point, they'll have to make the call where, you know, to switch over to the two-dose schedule, but I don't think we're there quite yet. Um, how will that change restrictions in your mind? Uh, many are, you know, people want to get back to normal, all that sort of thing. Uh, many caution that, uh, you, you know, things won't get back to whatever the new normal is until you get to. Uh, will we see things open up with one dose? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I don't really know the answer because it's basically a political decision. And, uh, you know, the, the people at Queen's Park are going to say, well, this is what the death rate looks like, like right now. Um, 
you know, this is this, these are the you know people are telling us to reopen. They'll have to weigh these kind of epidemiological outcomes with with political pressures, right? And so I don't know if they're going to say let's go ahead and reopen after everyone's got one dose. Uh, um, it's because we've <laughs> it's never happened before that we've had the vaccine in the pandemic. So so um, and perhaps they don't even know yet what they're going to do either. Uh, but you know, at some point, when enough people are vaccinated, I, I think we'll be we'll be back to a new normal. Uh, and um, not clear what that'll look like, but it'll be a big improvement. <laughs> and um, and I think it's not that far away. You know, I think we're looking at that. Uh, if the latest information about the vaccine doses is true, we're looking at that. You know, by the end of the summer, uh, kind of returning to a, norm, a new normal. I'd say. So, uh, will we still start to see, uh, and you know, I'm getting you to look into your crystal ball, uh, crystal ball here, Chris, but say, for example, by summer, uh, we have all had one shot. Say by uh, July 1st, we've all had one of the of the shots uh, of the two that we need. Will what what do you anticipate um, these rates will look like, the case rate and the death rate, once we get to that point? Mm. So if, if everyone's got one shot and then you're adding on top of that whatever natural immunity has occurred from people who got infected, uh, and on top of that you have warm summer weather, it means more people are spending time outdoors um, and, and not in indoor settings uh, you know, close together, I think we'll see cases very low uh, in the later half of the summer. It should. It, you you would think that would happen anyway, from modeling exactly. and what you've That's seen. What basically, what happened last year, uh, um, they started to reopen in June, uh, and cases did start to creep up after that. But the warm weather kind of kept that suppressed. So, um, so if you add to that, this year we've got everyone having a dose and some natural immunity. You know that's that's why I think it's 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 pretty much a, a, a sure bet that cases will be pretty low in August. So, um, so here we are in March, uh, starting uh, vaccination. Uh, seniors have been started way back as far as January. So, even those that are that are starting with the mass vaccination clinics that we're seeing open up this week, uh, March, April, May, June, July, we have until July to administer that second dose. Would that be accurate? That's right. Yeah. And do you anticipate there will be an issue with administering the second dose as there was with the first? You mean in terms of supply? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a bit out of my wheelhouse, uh, you know, since that's more like a logistics uh, and delivery issue. And I don't know how many, I mean, you know, something could always happen, like sometimes factories have to go down and and the production is delayed. Um, But, you know, I, I think, Probably we'll see a similar kind of trend to what happened in the states, uh, whereby the, the vaccine program has been going r- really quite well, and I think we'll we'll be in that situation as, as well in Canada. So, I, I don't foresee uh, a situation where um, we'll have such extreme limitations as we did before, because now we've worked out the kinks in the supply line. We've got more vaccines coming online, you know, not just Moderna, Pfizer, but AstraZeneca, uh, and and so it sounds to me like undersupply will not be an issue in the summer. Um, yeah, you know, of course, barring, barring some unforeseen event like factories having to shut for some reason. 
And it must give you confidence, too, seeing the United States where they are, and they've agreed to send us stuff once they reach a surplus scenario. So if they're talking about getting uh, their people between May, June, and the the president has said everybody's going to be enjoying a vaccination barbecue uh, for the 4th of July, which means everybody's free and clear we should that that should drastically change the situation in canada should it not as they start to uh, uh, pump more vaccine up into canada especially to try to get the border open that's right yeah i mean it's in their interest to do that isn't it so, so if, if for no other reason they might they might um, um send those excess vaccines sooner rather than later uh and um uh, you know, in fact, one day it won't be the summer. We might even have an oversupply of vaccines because there are still others that are in the pipeline. Yeah. Uh, it's not just the three. There are dozens of companies developing that, these vaccines. So, but definitely in the short term, because, we, you know, we have three licensed um, proven vaccines. Uh, and, uh, you know, if we have the current, you know, supply increases for Canada, plus whatever excess that the U.S. can send us, I, you know, I, I think we'll be in really good shape uh, uh, come July. And it looks like good news for AstraZeneca, especially coming out of the States when they're on their way to approving this and said that they got quite a high efficacy rate uh, for the AstraZeneca. And again, uh, thumbs up as far as safety and all of that. So that's got to be good news uh, in the supply chains to know that AstraZeneca is, is getting the nod and is getting more and more confirmation that it's a success. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they did their own, the U.S. likes to do its own studies for efficacy and safety, right? So they did their own study uh, looking at these issues the, with the blood clotting, the thrombocytopenia. And, uh, you know, they did not find uh, any statistical uh, effect for the AstraZeneca vaccine. So, so that's, that's, you know, that's great news that we have a, a third safe vaccine to use. We're hearing anecdotally that some are cautious about the AstraZeneca vaccine for that and just the confusing messaging uh, around it with uh, um, uh, the National Advisory on uh, Council on Immunization and Health Canada having two uh, conflicting uh, opinions for a while. Now they have uh, have agreed that uh, to be on the same page and such. Um, but what do you think this does? Does this help uh, when it comes to hesitancy around the AstraZeneca vaccine? I think it will help. I mean, there will always be, there's a whole spectrum of people from people who are totally opposed to vaccines and will never take it. Uh, to, to the opposite, and you know, most people are, are just hesitant. They just uh, uh, they believe in the process, but they want for information. They have questions that got to be answered, uh, and you know, it, it's it's public health's job to answer them. So, you know, it, it certainly didn't help that there was this initial uncertainty. Uh, but uh, you know, they were open about it. And they said, "Well, look, we've got a few cases of blood clotting, we're, we're, and we're looking into it, and that was the right thing to do." Uh, they followed that up with uh, larger studies to see if it was just a, a chance or whether or not there is a systematic effect, and they, and they didn't find one. So um, they did everything correctly. Uh, and, um, so, uh, and, you know, and so, you know, they, they couldn't have done much else under the circumstances. They followed the right procedure. You know, so, so you know, hopefully people are, are uh, you know, confident enough, but, but you know, some people are, 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 will be put off by that. So some, some, you know, and some people will never take any vaccine at all, right? So there's a whole spectrum of, of different uh, perspectives towards the vaccine. Um, but, uh, uh, so you won't always be able to reach, you know, the, the people who are, who are just never going to get the vaccine, unfortunately. Chris Bow, research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and a specialist in mathematical and computer modeling of infectious disease outbreaks with the University of Waterloo. Chris, thank you for the time. Be well.
Thanks, Scott. You too. Bye-bye. Good news out of the uh, early testing from the U.S. uh, that AstraZeneca is posing a 79% uh, efficacy rate at this point, and they've had no issues around safety. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us now. Uh, Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Of course. Same to you, Scott. Thank you for having me. So obviously with the confusion around AstraZeneca at the beginning, this is good news. Absolutely, it's good news. And I will say that I also need a haircut. I just want that for the record. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you know, I can also, I can always recommend going down to the wood, but you know, that's not for everybody until you need it. Oh, I'm getting there. So it won't be long till I lose all my hair. Um, no, AstraZeneca is great. I mean, the news, I mean, there were never any doubts about that. I mean, we just have to make that very clear. I mean, there were doubts by countries, but the scientific bodies who were in charge of reviewing AstraZeneca were very clear from day one that we should not be concerned about the link between blood clots and AstraZeneca. So, uh, and the study from the U.S. that's, you know, with 30,000 volunteers, I mean, that's a huge number, was able to demonstrate that the University of Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is 79% effective in preventing COVID-19. I mean, that's incredible because it really just reaffirms what uh, Health Canada has been saying all along, that any vaccine that we approve in Canada is safe and that you should take whatever vaccine you can get a hold of. Now, initially, uh, doctor, they said, uh, I believe it was around 62% for, uh, for AstraZeneca. How, how do you explain the differences in efficacy with the U.S. study now coming up to 79%? Well, I mean, with all efficacy, whether it's Moderna, Pfizer, or AstraZeneca, you'll notice that the longer we study it, the effectiveness will, will a little bit change. Uh, and the reason probably because they had 30,000 volunteers, a longer period of time to study this for the U.S. one, so the effective, effective rate has changed. I mean, we also heard that with Pfizer and Moderna, where they said, you know, the 95, 97 efficacy rate that was, uh, you know, reported on their effectiveness might be a little bit different than that. But the bottom line for you and I, for everybody out there, you know, is that it is effective. It is 100% effective at reducing your chance of dying uh, or severe hospitalization. That's what we should be really paying careful attention to and not so much about the percentage of how much it is effective. And we're also hearing that some of the European countries, Scandinavian countries who are questioning this are now reversing uh, that decision. Um, any thoughts on to how this started? I guess we're always better safe than sorry. Uh, but this has really thrown this and the, the different uh, messaging coming out of Health Canada and the National Advisory Committee. This has really made some people question this vaccine, which is unfortunate. I guess it's not unfortunate because we should question it, but it certainly has uh, ended up in some mixed messaging for them. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the problem that with vaccine hesitancy, and that was the concern with those news when they first emerged, is that we're trying to convince people that vaccines are safe and that you should get vaccinated. So whenever there is mounting evidence or speculation, to be honest, uh, to be clear, it's speculation. There is a possible effect of the vaccine. It goes against all the efforts to convince people to get vaccinated. And the European nations that were, you know, were hesitant, I don't blame them necessarily because I think they, as they made it clear that the reason why they stopped is that they wanted to just investigate. And so it came about the communication by, uh, in terms of the AstraZeneca. It was important to make clear to people that they were just investigating to make sure it is safe. They weren't investigating to say it, there is a confirmed link 
between the vaccine and those severe side effects that came out. Uh, and now that they've done their investigation, they're saying that actually there is no link and we can proceed forward. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we want countries and, and monitoring mm-hmm. bodies to continuously evaluate those vaccines. We do that with all medications, not just vaccines that we just developed. We do it with anything that's out there, whether it's drugs, treatments, diagnostic modalities, anything that's in relation to that involves human health is continuously being monitored to make sure that it is delivering up to the standards. Uh, and so you will hear reports once in a while where there might be a concern. What is important is that, like today, we're, we're communicating that, you know, that investigation has been done. And so far, there is no link to uh, with AstraZeneca and blood clots and thrombosis. So we can safely say that that issue has been put to rest. There has been no other negative information come forward on this. Correct. Correct. We can safely, as of today, March 22nd, say that there is no evidence to link AstraZeneca to blood clots or thrombosis. And, and thrombosis, Thrombotic Association or Thrombosis Association of Canada, which is a, a responsible body that looks at blood clotting, also released a statement last week that said that uh, as well. They said they reviewed all the evidence and from their standpoint, I mean, and those are the experts. Those are the people that you want to go to. Uh, they're all confirmed that there is no link. And so we have to trust the people who study this for a living and who understand the science. How much will AstraZeneca play into Canada's vaccination uh, strategy? I mean, obviously, we've seen um, uh, long-term care and retirement homes and such vaccinated. The the Premier wanted to see two doses for those since they were such a vulnerable uh, population. Um, but, you know, it, it appears that uh, that AstraZeneca is uh, what's in the supply chain for the pharmacies, uh, obviously because it's easier to handle and such. And we certainly know as they get more pharmacies and more supply ramping up, uh, you can now book an appointment through participating uh, pharmacies for 60 plus. Have you heard anything about that cohort, 60 plus, the rest, uh, being questioning this? And and will this finally put the AstraZeneca debate to bed? I think that, I mean, it's a, fa- it's a fair speculation to say that the majority of Canadians were speculating whether AstraZeneca is safe to take anymore. Uh, I find it very hard to believe that people were not at some point after they heard the news doubtful. I mean, and this is why the prime minister had to make a statement. I mean, everybody uh, in Canada was trying to make statements, clear communications that it is safe because everybody understood that there's a concern by the population and rightly so. I mean, you know, if you were going to, you know, hear reports about a side effect of a vaccine you're about to take, you're going to start questioning whether you should take it or not. And to answer your questions about the, the, the role of AstraZeneca and the rollout, I mean, AstraZeneca is going to be probably the main vaccine that most mm-hmm. Canadians will get vaccinated with. And so for us Canadians, you, you know, we can let leave the world aside and just think about us for a second. We don't have aggressive, back, you know, Pfizer, Moderna rollout. What we do have a lot of is AstraZeneca. And so in, in we've seen so far that AstraZeneca is the predominant vaccine being offered and might be the only one for the foreseeable future that is being supplied at a large dose and large supply of it. So for us, this was very important that we get clear. This was very important that we get a, a firm understanding behind the science and that we communicated to the general public as quick as possible. And we should also remind uh, that is the, the the workhorse of the UK and what they have accomplished in a short period of time. Absolutely. I mean, the UK has been very aggressive in their way of vaccination, and they've done actually quite well because they were able to utilize their very strong primary care model for so their family doctors 
to supply the vaccine, something we haven't really done yet in, in the, at the same scale as the UK here in Ontario. Okay, so here we are, and uh, we're Canada trying to get out as uh, many first doses as they possibly can. That's that's the new strategy. Uh, Ontario uh, finishing with the second dose with those in long term care. That's then that's it. Everybody else, it's one dose, uh, and you're waiting four months uh, to get uh, the second dose. Now with one dose. What can we do? Can we pretend that this is over? Uh, I mean, it, it's great that we are protected, but that doesn't necessarily mean things will change drastically until we get the second. Is that accurate? That's the million-dollar question that I get asked every single day. And so it's, <laughs> it's an incredible question, Scott, because we're telling people to get vaccinated, and then they, they, the, the question that follows that is that, well, can I now you know, stop wearing a face mask? Can I now not socially distance? So let me be very clear. Health Canada and in Canada, we have not done, uh, we have not provided very clear guidelines as to what is allowed to do and not to do once you are fully vaccinated. However, we can look at CDC, our neighboring country, the U.S., that has much larger vaccination rate than us, and they have actually released guidelines on what it means when you're fully vaccinated. And according to CDC in the U.S., fully vaccinated people, that means they've got their both doses, can visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors without mm-hmm. wearing a mask or without physical distancing and without and or without physical distancing. So basically, they can resume to normal life if you've both been fully vaccinated. Uh, if you're going to visit an unvaccinated people who are at low risk of COVID-19, you can also not wear a mask or physically distance. However, when you are in public, the CDC is still urging everybody to wear a mask, a well-fitted mask, and, uh, and, uh, and physically distance. I see Canada adopting the same uh, guidelines. And, and I think the reason why Canada has not really released uh, such clear guidelines as the CDC is because we haven't really vaccinated enough people. So for yeah. now, for us we're Canadians, not there. yeah, we're not there. And so for now, we need to continue practicing this. And I just will say one last thing is that you know, just because you're vaccinated doesn't guarantee you won't get COVID-19. It just means that you won't die from COVID-19 mm. and you won't end up in a severe hospitalization situation. Uh, people who have gotten both doses of COVID-19 vaccine uh, are still, uh, there is a possibility for them to get infected with a virus. It just won't play out such a, a drastic consequences as it would if you didn't get vaccinated. And therefore, we need to continue practicing public health intervention. Uh, you bring up a valid point that we won't see these guidelines until we get to the point where more Canadians are vaccinated. However, doctor, the long-term care has been. Uh, I know my mother has received two shots. Now they want out. They want people to come see them. And I have to explain, you've been vaccinated, but we haven't been vaccinated. And there has been some chatter about releasing or loosening some of the restrictions uh, in these homes because uh, the all of uh, the residents have been uh, vaccinated. They're free to move around their place now, but it's a different scenario until everyone gets vaccinated. What Any idea? what this means for long-term care considering they have been vaccinated yeah i mean i am the hope here is that the more i mean the, the issue becomes around staff who support long-term care the families and caregivers who come in and out of the facilities they also need to be vaccinated for mm-hmm. us to be really sure that they are safe i mean remember 
you know, it was more than 80% of all deaths related to COVID-19 happened there. And so it was very scary situation. So I would say that we would have to be extra careful with long-term care centers. And I would say that people will have to continue wearing face masks who come in and out of the facilities uh, because we need to make sure that the residents in long-term care home centers are safe. Uh, and I think what's going to happen, Scott, is that two things. One, we're going to need to see a more aggressive vaccination rollout plans across the country to ensure that we can get to a place where we can have the conversations about not wearing face masks and not needing social distance. But in the meantime, it is very important that Health Canada does issue specific guidelines, clear guidelines, explicit guidelines on what it means if you got one dose, what can you do and you cannot mm. do, and what can you do and not do if you got both doses. Uh, we've always, uh, and we've had this discussion before, Ahmad, as well, in regard to the first, second, and third wave, whether we're in it, what it looks like. The fact that we do have uh, that segment of long-term care vaccinated, uh, and, and obviously those were the most vulnerable, that's where we saw the most trage- uh, tragedy over the course of this. What will the third wave look like with this cohort now covered uh we're still we're still seeing deaths go up 1000 or sorry cases go up 1699 today in ontario uh but fortunately and obviously not to take anything away from these families and our condolences to them uh, the death rate has gone down i mean it, we're sitting at 3 so what does a is the third wave as bad as the second or the first or will we just see more young people in the, variant, the, the third wave is specifically around the variants, and there is a huge concern about how infectious they are and how fast they can spread within communities. And I think this is why the sort of the alarming signs are coming out and saying, hey, slow it down, because we're really worried about those variants. You know, the vaccines and our rollouts and, and the fact that we vaccinated all of long-term care, that's incredible. It's protecting us over, you know, the majority of COVID-19, sort of the, the original virus. But this new variant uh, that are, you know, getting rampant within our communities, that's where the risk is caught. And, you know, we don't want to get to a point where we, you know, the vaccine can't match the rate of uh, infection. And we just it's a race right now. It's a constant race with the vaccinations trying to get ahead of the the curve. And and you really, really, really try to, you know, suppress the COVID-19 rate of infection, uh, rapid rate of infection within our communities. What are your thoughts of the openings that we are seeing, uh, especially in the gray lockdown areas? I guess now they can open up outdoor patio restaurants and such, uh, obviously protocol, limited uh, seating and such. But we are moving towards that. How concerning is that to you, considering these are populated areas, highly populated areas? I mean, my hope is that people will continue to follow public health interventions and wear really tight, well-fitted face masks, continue to practice social distancing in this opening places so you know patios have been open in some places please make sure you practice you know safe hand hygiene you wear your mask and you socially distance as much as possible as you can i mean you know people need a little bit of a break but we can't forget that the pandemic is happening and that when you're offered the vaccine you get vaccinated i mean that the one way for all of us to resume back to normal life is that the majority of us have to get vaccinated so you know, have those discussions with other people, challenge the evidence, you're most welcome to do so, get reliable evidence, ask the experts, acquire information wherever you find it most trustworthy, talk to your family doctor. Uh, if you have any questions about, uh, you know, the vaccine and its, uh, its safety for you and how it applies for you, that's all the things that you can do in the meantime until you get vaccinated. And hopefully we can, you know, look at a time where this is all behind us very soon in the near future.
As more of us do get vaccinated and we see that age cohort move down, uh, end with one dose, are you concerned that people who have one dose, it will give a give them a false sense of security? Yes, because we're already seeing that. And that's why a lot of health authorities around the world are releasing very clear statements to say there's a difference between being fully vaccinated and only being partially vaccinated. And by that, they mean one dose versus two doses. The U.S. right now is getting to a place where they're actually providing fully vaccinations and so both doses for individuals so they're able to release statements that actually indicate a little bit of what our future looks like in Canada you know the more we get people fully vaccinated we're going to be able to gather indoors without wearing masks and without having to socially distance we're going to be able to gather outside with other with other unvaccinated with other vaccinated individuals with the same rule and so that's hope for us uh, that you know the more we aggressively vaccinate people the better that our future will look like. The summer shouldn't be too bad, should it, doctor? Or are we willing to go out on a limb and say that? Uh, I'm scared to go out on a limb and say that because the variants, they're, they're yeah. very unpredictable. And, and we're, you know, we know now a lot about COVID-19, the original one. We don't know necessarily as much about the variants. And so we have to be very careful with our approach. However, I am hopeful. I mean, last year, the summer, yes, we had restrictions in place for the most part. But, you know, we were still able to go out to parks uh, and enjoy parts of the summer. And hopefully, with more vaccinations out there, we can actually exercise, you know, even more easier restrictions outdoors this summer, maybe perhaps by the end of the summer rather than the beginning of the summer. Good news on the way, but you got to remember the protocol. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.